I want to go to Portland. I don't know what's in Seattle. I don't know what's in Portland. <laughs> we need to figure out what's in Seattle. <laughs> Welcome to What's in Seattle, a podcast where we talk about things that might be in Seattle because we don't know. <laughs> You're listening to more research required? <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was a good intro. Science and technology. Hello and welcome to More Research Required, a podcast where we talk about what's in Seattle. My name is Amy Takamuchi. My name is Abby Norling-Ruggles. Normally, we don't do that. Normally, we talk about the research studies we would do if anyone would give us the money, but it's been like six days since the last time we recorded. We just did research. We're so tired. (laughs) And we're about to like go on a really long plane ride. Go to a convention. We need low effort. Yeah. And we're going to go to a podcast convention. So that's basically like doing a podcast. (laughs) Basically, we can like network and stuff. (laughs) Make new friends. First, we have to figure out what is in Seattle. Right. Because we don't know. Like, I'm in East Coast. (laughs) I've never seen anything other than the East Coast. You must have, like, been to the West Coast, right? I mean, once. My sister had a job in uh, San Francisco, and I visited her for, like, a week, but... My aunt lives in San Francisco, Bay Area. Or she lives in Berkeley, but, you know, Bay Area. It's pretty nice. Never been above there. No, neither have I. I've heard that it rains. I've heard there's rain there. I've heard there's vampires there. (laughs) Oh, yes, I, too, have heard about the vampires, (laughs) as well as an exciting genre of uh, books, film, and television, known as, according to friend of the podcast, Shelby, Pacific Noir, but it's not noir. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I do, like, Pacific Noir is a good name, but also definitely a misnomer. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So I mean, do we, do we want to like talk about that? Do we, like what what defines that genre or whatever? Is that a question? Yeah, I think it is. Just like what factors create the genre of Pacific noir, other than the fact that there are trees and it's raining all the time yeah. and it's in the Pacific Northwest explicitly. Yeah, no, right. It's a weird genre because it's so location based. I can't really think of another genre that's like that. So to be clear, podcast listeners. The genre is, um, you know, a lot of things that sort of sprung out of Twin Peaks, I think. So things that are set in the Pacific Northwest and there's like woods and it's like misty and old forests and there's like weird supernatural stuff, but also it's kind of quirky. So like other examples of this would be um, Gravity Falls and Tannis and probably there are other ones. I mean, I feel like X-Files gets this way sometimes, but, you know, they travel all over the country. So, right. So it's only the episodes where they're in the Pacific Northwest. Right. And yeah, I mean, there's lots. Of, I, I do think that Twilight is also a provisional case. It has a lot of these elements. <laughs> it has old forests and, and like hypothetically sort of horror elements and also supernatural creatures. Also, it's raining all the time. Also, it's set in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, well, it's raining all the time because it's set in the Pacific Northwest, like pretty obviously. <laughs> I'm just saying you don't have to make it rain all the time if something's set in the Pacific Northwest. But that's what happens in the Pacific Northwest, right? Yeah, but it's still, the author makes that choice. I guess. Sure. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's like spooky and foggy and rainy, and that's what's up with that genre. So, right, I mean, but like, it's it's weird because it is so, I mean, it's a genre that's set in a specific place, and also, 
it's a genre that um, comes from one specific work, I think. I mean, kind of depending on how you define it, but like clearly Twin Peaks is the genre defining work of Pacific Noir, I guess is what we're calling it. Right. I'm going to be honest. I never saw Twin Peaks. I always mean to and I don't. I know that Laura Palmer is there. She's dead. That's okay. the point of the show is they're trying to figure out who killed her. <laughs> All right. So I know two things about Twin Peaks now. What about like the log lady? Do you know about that? There's pie, I think. I I, know I haven't seen all of Twin Peaks. I think that there's coffee. I think there there's a coffee. lot of yeah, coffee. Definitely. Is that something that shows up in a lot of Pacific Noir? Ooh, good question. I think that's probably pretty likely that it does. Because coffee is a Seattle thing or a Pacific Northwest thing. One of those. Yeah, I feel like, okay, I don't have the strongest memories of Gravity Falls, but I do think that there are definitely a lot of diners in Gravity Falls. And- there are diners. Yeah, I think diners are an element of, uh, I don't, are there a lot of diners in the Pacific Northwest? I don't know, but I do think there are a lot in this new, I mean, I, I do think it's tonally different from noir, but it shares a lot with noir because it's, I still think Pacific Noir is not actually, like, a good name to describe what it is. Mm-hmm. But it is, like, it's mostly defined by this sort of eerie tone, which is not the same tone as Noir, but it's, like, defined by the tone. But then also there are sort of, like, stock elements that I think are kind of similar between them. Like, they're, they're sort of, I mean, for Noir, it's, like, a dark, gritty city. And for um, Pacific Noir, it's you know, a small town with sort of the same, like, stock characters. There's always a diner. Oh, it's just a specific type of gothic, isn't it? Maybe maybe it's Pacific Northwest gothic. Yeah, yeah, that's very possible. That's what it is. Yeah, the Tumblr meme just destroyed it for us, so we can't think of anything as gothic in its actual original <laughs> sense anymore. Yeah, no, but this is, like, gothic for real. I think you're right. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. All right. Okay, we solved this we one. We solved it. <laughs> nice Shelby's job. we so happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, moving on, I guess. What else yeah. do we know about Seattle? Space Needle. Does it touch space? No. Solve that one. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> you can't prove it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I can. Like, what if we just fly over it in the plane <laughs> coming in? Okay, but that is, how do you define where space begins? I, scientists have a definition. <laughs> it's like outside the atmosphere, I think. <laughs> All right. Okay. You got me there. Okay. It's solved. We're done. <laughs> um, do you have any questions about like coffee or anything like that? Is there coffee there? Yes. In is Seattle? Is like a specific thing? Well, like Starbucks is from there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well... Where did the mer- why does the mermaid have two fins? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess there's a lot of questions we could ask about Starbucks. Yeah. I don't like I I have some trouble like picturing the Starbucks logo. Like do they, why why is it like that? Yeah, because the tail's coming in from both sides. So the options are actually it's a regular person who's holding two <laughs> fish that are out of frame or just like a very huh. flexible mermaid that's really showing with off. With two tails. Yeah, with two tails. Or they have a friend there like when you get behind your friend and put your arms under their arms and then they're Oh yeah, kind of like that. Or like if they were like two people in a horse costume but it's just like two mermaids. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's Okay, so which of these hypotheses <laughs> seems the most likely? I think it's two mermaids dressing as a horse. 
Wait, that's we have to open a coffee shop now. That's themed up two mermaids dressing, but they're in a horse costume. I don't know. Really, any horse costume could be full of two mermaids. <laughs> well, no, because you need four legs. Well, they don't arms. have. Oh, you think it's every horse costume is two mermaids doing a handstand? Like they're both doing handstands? Yes, because I think that their arms would be much stronger than human arms because they that's the only appendage that they really have. That's... Yeah, but they live in the water, so they don't have to like put any effort into anything ever. Well, they have to do a lot of grasping and pulling mm-hmm. and swimming, and Maybe. swimming really tones the muscles. That's true. Okay, so... Do mermaids have strong arms? The study. (laughs) Yeah, this is important to scientifically research. Yeah, I'll call science right now. I mean, I feel like you could actually do, you know, because they have those mermaid tails that people wear in the water. So I feel like there could actually be a really interesting study that was about, like, you know, the, the dynamics of swimming with a tail versus with two legs and, like, to which one requires more arm strength and like which one is I, I think having the big tail actually makes it like a lot easier to swim oh really yeah or at least like to propel yourself because you got a fins actually that would be a really cool study like a really cool unnecessary study about like four whimsical people who want to know the best way to swim and are okay with looking like a mermaid <laughs> yeah I mean uh, right now just a, just a study of like how mermaids swim better than humans but like in reality because you can put tails on people yeah I'm very into this and I want it to happen. Me too, actually. Who's going to fund that? Oh, geez. Like, could it have like a medical application as like a prosthetic or something? Actually, maybe. Yeah. Like, if it's less stress to swim when your legs are in a tail. That's true. I mean, I don't know that like... I mean, I, I guess there's probably a market for like swimming specific prosthetics. Yeah. Probably. All right, let's do that one someday. <laughs> yes, when we are medical doctors. <laughs> Listen, a girl can dream. <laughs> Just get every degree. Yeah. All right, so sure. we've like locked that one up, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that was very Seattle related. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what Seattle is. <laughs> okay, should we talk about our very good podcast <laughs> idea? Is there any way we can make that a study? <laughs> Yes, there is, which is we are studying the ways that fandoms across time interact or would interact. And okay, so a little background. I keep like turning to the computer like this is our audience. It is. Um, so background, we're going to PodCon. It is a con for foreign about podcasts, but due to a misunderstanding earlier tonight or just a little like wordplay or something. A very I don't know. Good joke. Wait, what was the joke? Well, Shelby was... It was Shelby misspeaking. Yeah, Shelby was going to say a word that was not pod. I think it might have been, like, con. No, she she was going to say con, but she said pod. She said that we were going to go in our pods. Yeah. And then I made a really good joke about pods and how we were going to emerge after 100 years wearing our fandom t-shirts. And then I asked what fandom you would rep if you had to go into a pod for 100 years. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Right. No. And then I proposed a con that's just called PodCon that people attend after having been in a pod for some length of time. So it's a lot of people from different time periods all just repping their fandoms with their fandom t-shirts. Yes. Yeah, no, I mean, it It would, like, if you want to study fandom, which I do always all the time, 
then it's a good way to do it. Right, sure. You just get to see the the Arthur Conan Doyle Sherlock fans with their black bands around their arms for because they're in mourning for the character of Sherlock Holmes interacting with like elementary fans. Oh, do you think that do you think that they know that he comes back? Well, some of them probably don't. Oh, they're going to be so happy. <laughs> It will be really excited. And then you just get, like, the the super jaded Sherlock fans who are like, yeah, he basically dies at the end of every season. That's what I remember from Sherlock. I don't think that's accurate, but there's a lot of, like, ooh, like, Moriarty's doing things from beyond the grave or whatever. I don't know what's happening in Sherlock right now. I watched, like, two episodes of Sherlock, and they weren't even the first one. Well, ones. there's only three in a season, so, like, that's, like, half the Sherlock that there is. <laughs> it's not half the Sherlock that there is, but it's a lot of the Sherlock that there is. Yeah, it sure is. There's just so much of it in each episode. Anyway, this is a podcast where we talk about Sherlock, the television show, even though we haven't watched it in a while. <laughs> I can't actually, I think I maybe watched two seasons. So yeah, we're not exactly Sherlock experts. But have you heard about like, um, like modern Sherlock fans? I feel like all of them, I've like read some article, not like scholarly articles. I've read some like articles that people have written about the modern Sherlock fandom. And it seems like all of the current diehard fans are convinced that there's like this subtle, like Illuminati conspiracy kind of thing. That's like, they're dropping hints that Sherlock and John are going to get together. And they all absolutely think this is going to be canon. Oh no! It's very unfortunate, but also very fascinating. Oh, this poor, poor children. I know. Right. And, like adults. Like, yeah, just love yourselves and find canon queer fandoms such as podcasts. Yes, every podcast is gay. Just get in on it. Yeah, there's so much out there that's not just Sherlock yeah. going on forever and they never get together. Yeah, it's not It's not going to happen. Stephen Moffat is there. It's not going to happen. This is actually another interesting question, though. What do you think that um, original Arthur Conan Doyle Sherlock fans would think about the gay stuff? Huh. Huh. That's actually a good question because I don't really know a lot about, like, queer culture in that time. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, like, a, a lot of people don't, I think, because it was kind of buried. Right. I mean, very, like, intentionally buried by both people at the time and historians since then. But right, like, I'm sure that it was not, you know, socially acceptable at that time to be queer in many circles, so... I'm sure some of them would not be into it, but, like, there were queer people back then. We know that. So, you know, I wonder if anyone was reading it on to Sherlock and John or James. Oh, I hope so, actually. (laughs) And then, like, them coming into the modern era and everyone's like, yes, Sherlock and John are in love. (laughs) And that would be great. I mean, I don't necessarily, like, totally ship it, but I, I support those queer Arthur Conan Doyle Holmes fan. Yeah, I also don't ship it, but I just want I want them to have this. You yeah. know? I want the I want the Doyleist fans to have this. Doyle I guess they're Doyleist fans wouldn't they, well, I mean wouldn't they kind of be Watsonian fans? I don't know. Hard to say. <laughs> you're right, you're right, you're right. The the A C D fans. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to say whether that would be... I mean, it's sometimes hard to draw distinctions between Watsonian and Doyleist, but they're very handy terms. Yeah, I'm not going to try to make sure I have the right ones right now. Cause we're... Well, so Watsonian would be, like, people who explain things in-universe 
as if from the perspective of John Watson, the in-universe narrator of the stories and people who are doyalists are people who look for, you know, try to explain plot holes and stuff by what the author was thinking. Yeah. So very yeah. handy. I think I just meant Arthur Conan Doyle fans, though. Right, yeah. No, I mean, but, but I like that is words. like an existing term. <laughs> I do like the words. But anyway, yeah, that's our very great idea that is not actually related to our podcast at all. No, because we're using it to study fandom interactions across time and the ways that fandom... But the thing I love about this study is that... Or this quote-unquote study is that we're building this, like, cross-time period space. Like, we're inventing time travel or at least cryogenic freezing to do this and to study these interactions that literally would never happen if we didn't build this. Yeah. So I think it's a little far-fetched as a study idea. But it would be really cool and I think it would teach us a lot about like humanity and the way that people interact with the things that they enjoy. I mean it would like a great use of cryogenic freezing if you assume that we're doing studies with zero ethics, which is what we usually do on this podcast, um, would be to, like, freeze people, just, like, wake them up in the future and, like, expose them to modern stuff and sort of see how our perceptions of them are compared to, like, their actual lives. Like, I mean, obviously that's, you know, the dream of any, like, you know, historian or whatever is to get, like, the real actual version of what happened back then and you can't do much better than having a person in the fandom at the time. Yeah, I think it would also be really cool to thrust people into a fandom where they do not have the cultural background that forms that fandom. For example, like we were talking about Pacific Northwest stuff earlier, watching like a Gravity Falls, if you have never not only seen Twin Peaks or been exposed to any of the like um, right, if you don't have, like, of... the cultural osmosis, even, of, like, knowing what Twin Peaks is. Yeah, like, is everything novel to you, or is everything, like, sort of confusing, or, like... Yeah, no, I mean, right, that is really interesting, and that actually is kind of, like, an experiment that I think we could actually do, or, like, not us, but someone could do with modern science, is, like, just expose people, like, so, I mean, sort of see, like, you'd have to narrow it down a little bit, but you could take people from like wildly different cultures and just expose them to you know i mean for example you take um you know i don't know like expose an american to some like mongolian pop culture or something you know like and and just sort of something that's really like rooted in the cultural references of that community and like see how you know how their experience of it relates to an experience of a person from that culture Abby that happens in real life and it's called anime and no okay but there's so much cultural exchange between America and Japan like I see what you're saying but like that's true and there's definitely more of it like now especially that there are a bunch of American animators that grew up on anime right and the fact that um you know like weeaboos are their own culture of westerners who like anime that have their own sort of cultural associations for it which is i mean also really fascinating and like i assume there are probably already ethnographies about weeaboos but probably i don't know if weeaboo is like a slur for their community (laughs) yeah i don't either (laughs) it does have a very good etymology do you know the etymology of weeaboo no tell me about it okay so people were using the term weijin for white asian to refer to, like, white people who wanted to be Asian. Um, and then some internet community said, um, 
you know, like, I guess that's offensive or like that's, you know, maybe kind of iffy race wise. So we need to replace it with a different term. And they picked a term from just a random comic. You might have seen the comic floating around, actually. It's kind of hard to describe, but it's like, uh, it's, it's just a, a bunch of office workers who start, they're in a meeting and one of them says, like, we're spending too much time on weeaboo and then they all start chanting weeaboo and it's like a weird like ritualistic game that they play so i feel like i'm not explaining this well so like the precursor to the teeth tweet what's the teeth tweet the teeth tweet is the standing in line at the yeah the premise of the teeth tweet is standing in line at the dentist and someone starts saying teeth teeth and then it just devolves to everyone in the office saying teeth 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 yeah teeth. everyone's just chanting it and the nurse is like banging her clipboard and stuff yeah kind of like that but it's like a webcomic from the early internet but that's the origin of the term weeaboo And then it just got, like, super universally adopted. Like, I always assumed that it was some, like, bastardization of a Japanese word, but it's not. It's entirely unrelated. That's really good, actually. I love weird etymologies. And now this is just a linguistics podcast, as it always is. Yeah, it's never stopped being a linguistics podcast for a single moment. It's formed who we are. Yeah, although I I think that we did, we, like, eventually sort of made it to a good range of um, study ideas on this episode. What is Seattle? Yeah, we did it. We discovered what it is. It's kind of a problem. We, like, we came into this with, like, one legitimate question, and we did just, like, solve it on the podcast. So that's not designing a study, but... I mean, we could write a paper, probably, about how... Pacific Northwest Gothic is like a real thing now. Yeah, and like sometimes research doesn't mean doing a study. Sometimes research means reading a lot of stuff and then making a paper about it. Yeah, no, and it could be like a film studies or like an English department paper. Like that's not really my area at all, but most of the stuff we talk about isn't. So, (laughs) yeah, we could really make this fly in a film and media studies department, I think, actually. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Like, I mean, I don't know. I wonder if people are already, like, if this is a thing that those departments have talked about. Probably someone's got to be talking about, like, the impact of Twin Peaks and that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with the revival that recently happened. It's probably been at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Yeah, definitely. Well, we solved, we solved science today in Seattle. Sure. Yes. We now know everything about Seattle. (laughs) Yeah. Or we will once we do these studies. Yeah, we didn't even have to look anything up. We just know now. (laughs) Yeah. That space needle goes all the way to space. Nope, not that one. <laughs> okay, so should we do like our wrap up stuff? Yeah. Our music is Marie Curie off the album Discover Science. You can email us at moreresearchcast.gmail.com. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at moreresearch underscore. And do we? Have- you can find us on Tumblr at moreresearchrequired.tumblr.com. Mm hmm. Um, and also you can rate and review us on iTunes or subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Not all of them, but you know, most of them. Um, and also we're both on another podcast that's called Tortal Recall and we yell about 
Tamer Pierce books, and it's very fun, and we sound smarter than we did on this episode of this podcast. <laughs> At most times in our lives, we do sound smarter <laughs> than we did on this episode of our podcast. Yes. <laughs> but look, we did one six days ago. It was also very silly, but did require a little bit more effort, and now we're traveling, and it's like, it's a whole thing. <laughs> Every wrinkle in my brain has flattened. Yep. Okay, so do you have, like, some kind of sign-off? Yeah. Until next time, read the item descriptions on Chinese food menus and stay curious. Sage wisdom. Yeah, I made I made a food mistake. <laughs>